Welcome to the Daily Objectives. Today we have with us Amis Adalza. Amis is, you probably already know him, he's a world expert on infectious disease and a senior scholar at John Hopkins University. And I'm so glad we have him. And in terms of, we're going to ask questions that many of us haven't very clear in our mind in terms of where the epidemic, where the pandemic is in terms of, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Are we already maybe out of the tunnel? But also some more difficult questions in terms of when are vaccine mandates moral, uh, even when they are in the private sector. So maybe they are, they could be legal, but are they moral? And he can help us clarify many of these issues. And with me today, I've got Mark. Thanks for both of you for being with us. So Amy's first question is, oh, and also obviously the audience, you can contribute with your super chats in terms of asking Amy's questions. So the first question is, where do you see us in terms of where we are in the pandemic? So are you overall optimist that the worst is behind us in terms of we have the vaccines and uh, those of the people who wanted to have them probably have them. So is the worst behind us or are you still worried? Generally, I do think the worst is behind us, but it's going to depend upon what, what part of the country you're in, what part of the world you're in, because there are some countries where vaccine access is very low, where those countries don't have uh, the ability to vaccinate their population. So they're still going to have trouble. But if you look at the Western countries where vaccines have been available, at least probably since the end of 2020, December of 2020 is when the UK and when the United States started vaccinating. I do think that the worst is behind us in that we've got a significant proportion of the population that's been fully vaccinated vaccinated, another proportion that has some immunity from prior infection. We've got monoclonal antibodies. Uh, in the UK, you already have an antiviral that we don't have yet in the United States. Uh, so, so this is all looking good, that science and technology have largely solved the medical problems with this uh, with this pandemic. And, but it's important to remember that this is a virus that can't be eliminated, it can't be eradicated. There's always going to be a baseline number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. The goal is to keep them from crushing our hospitals, and I think we have the tools to do that. So overall, I'm optimistic, and I'm actually you know, very pleased with how quickly, within two years, we have multiple antivirals, multiple monoclonal antibodies, multiple vaccine candidates, home diagnostic tests. That really shows what science can do when it's put to a task um, with a virus that no one had even didn't even know existed prior to uh, December of, uh, of, uh, 20, of 2019. So, and when it comes to those who have had the vaccine, so I remember you telling at some point in the beginning of the summer that if you had both doses, basically go on with your life. Obviously, terms and conditions apply in terms of everyone's health condition, all this stuff. Now, having seen the vaccines, uh, their performance for all these months, would you still believe that, yes, if you have both vaccines and unless you are, you know, your health condition is very, very much compromised, then you should confidently go on with your life? I do. I think if you're a, a someone that's healthy, that's not elderly, that doesn't have other medical problems, and you've been fully vaccinated, I think you can go back to your life knowing that, yes, you might get a breakthrough infection. They do occur, but that breakthrough infection is going to be mild. It's probably not even going to call, call you, cause you to call your doctor. So, so I've Myself, I include myself in that uh, in that group that I've went back to my life after being fully vaccinated. Uh, again, I think you have to remember that that people that are uh, that that have other health conditions that may not be the same. They have a different risk risk uh, profile, so that might be something that they have to to judge. But I think for most other people, I think it, it is something that really changes your life and allows you to go about go about it without fear of COVID nineteen being that disruptive of a force. 
But, but remember that the risk is not going to be zero with a virus that's established itself in the human population. We can't get back to 2019. This virus doesn't magically go back into bats. It's with us. And I think that the vaccine is the best way to, to modulate your ability to navigate a world where COVID-19 is going to be a threat that you have to deal with, but a threat that's easily manageable if you're fully vaccinated and healthy. And at what point do you think that someone who's had two doses would be considered, not in the eyes of the government, because already Boris Johnson said, soon, if you haven't done your third vaccine, you're going to be considered probably unvaccinated. So this was the, the, the meaning. But in the eyes of a doctor, of a scientist like yourself, after what period of having the second dose would you consider that, okay, now you're again almost as if you're unvaccinated, so go have the third dose? Or is there even such a point? There really isn't a point because it depends upon what you're trying to get the vaccines to do. And with a virus, like I said, that's going to be with us. The goal is, goal is to prevent serious illness, hospitalization, and death. And we haven't seen in healthy people, the vaccines erode that ability. Yes, breakthrough infections are becoming more common, but our serious breakthrough infections are becoming more common in a, in a healthy person, someone like me, 46 years old. No, they're not. So I don't think that, that that's the goal with these vaccines. There may be second generation vaccines that come down the that are coming in the pipeline that might provide different types of immunity, maybe maybe more immunity in your nose that prevent more infections. But I think right now the vaccines in healthy people are doing exactly what they were designed to do. So I don't see any reason to, to say that, there, that there's a point where you are the same as an unvaccinated person or a non-immune person, because it's not just antibodies, it's the T cells that your, your immune system makes and, and they're holding up really well when it comes to preventing hospitalization. I think it's important to track that and follow that. And if we actually see erosion, then to make a decision, but there's no evidence for that at this point. And the third doses, the boosters, they really have have value in, in high-risk individuals, and I think it's important that they get vaccinated uh, so that they're protected. But, but for the healthy population, I still think this has not really been, a, a, been proven, at least to my satisfaction. Okay. So, I mean, there's so much selfish value from all these answers, but Mark, I'm, I have 15 more questions, so uh, do you want to jump in at some point? What about that therapeutic that's supposed to come out with Pfizer? Do you think that makes uh, the boosters sort of, sort of a moot point? I think they're two different issues. So if you're somebody that's 65 years old with cancer or heart disease or whatever, or you're a 45 year old with diabetes, I still think you should get the booster vaccine. That even if you've got a Pfizer or a Merck antiviral, which are going to be really great and game changing, they should be used in complementary to the vaccine. My issue with the boosters is when they're being promoted to healthy people, because I don't really know what the goal is there, because it's not really preventing hospitalization because there's a low risk for hospitalization to begin with. But I, I do think that that we want we don't want the antivirals to be seen as a substitute for the vaccine. The vaccine is still the best thing. It's still better to prevent yourself from getting infected than to be in a, than to actually have a treatment after you've been infected. And what I would say is, if you're a high risk individual, go get your booster vaccine and also be be kind of. Uh, glad that there are antivirals in case you get a breakthrough infection. And I think even for people who who have who have not gotten a booster and you're healthy. Those, those antivirals may come in, come in handy if you get a breakthrough infection to, to lessen their consequences in terms of the severity, the symptoms get you back on your feet faster. But, but I wouldn't think of these as supplements, uh, sub, uh, one supplanting the other, but more of a complementary to each other. So is this, sort of, is this sort of like the lay of the land that we have with the flu, where you have a, a flu vaccine and or antivirals and therapeutics for that, and the people who are at greater risk to take the, vac the vaccine every year in addition to using the therapeutics if they have to? Is that sort of the lay of the land now? 
Exactly. I think that this is going to be something similar to flu. And that's been the goal. The goal has been to take COVID-19 and shift it to a, a respiratory virus that's much more manageable, much more like influenza, much more like other things we deal with year in and year out. And the vaccines and the antivirals really do that. But what's interesting is that the, the vaccines and the antivirals for COVID-19 basically blow the flu, the flu antivirals and, and vaccines out of the water. They're just so much better. Uh, so I think we're in almost a better position with COVID-19 once we get more people to, to be willing to get vaccinated uh, than we are with influenza, where our vaccine is sort of suboptimal and our antivirals are good, but not, 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 as, in, not incredible, as incredible as the data from Pfizer and Merck look. Hey, I just have one quick question, because before we move on, and I don't know if this is going to step into territory you want to get into, but just strictly speaking with respect to the spread of the pandemic, do you think the lockdowns uh, in any way stopped the spread? Or so it's a good question. So I, I think it's, there, there's, there's two different ways to look, there's a couple of different ways to look at this, but yeah, if people don't interact and you've got a respiratory virus, yes, of course, that's going to bring cases down. Does it forestall what are the, are the lock? Is it, is it the treatment of choice? Is it what you should be doing? No, it's not. But yes, if people do not interact with each other, the virus is not going to have an opportunity to spread. So in that sense, if you're looking at just decreasing spread and not thinking about all the ancillary negative consequences of, of that type of a policy for other medical conditions, for psychosocial health, for what people's individual rights, um, that, you know, that, that's one way to, to do that. That's people often say, you know, if you wanted to stop, you know, gun violence, you just tell everybody you can't get out of your house. That also stops gun violence too. But is that the way you, is that the way to do it? Uh, that's a, that's a different, um, that's a different question, but, but what I would say in places like the United States, where they were, where the, the shutdowns and the lockdowns were not really not done in, in thankfully not done in the draconian uh, manner, they were draconian enough as they were, um, th that they weren't able to, to really to knock it down enough, but you clearly saw when people stopped social interaction, when you saw mobility, cell phone mobility data go down, cases went down uh, because people weren't interacting. It, and eventually what ended up happening is some of that behavior started getting driven underground and cases went up in places like California, even with strict lockdowns. But if you're asking, if you keep people apart forcibly, will they be able to transmit a communicable disease? The answer is no, they won't because they need interaction. But can you do that? Should you do that? That's a different question. I think that's, that makes sense. And we have some questions now that are addressed to the scientists, but also the intellectual. So we're going to get to also to some more, a bit more political questions. So let me read some super chats. Robert says, thank you for the sanity, Amis. If anyone has missed Dr. Adalza's latest insights and recommendations, he, I highly recommend his Twitter feed and the linked articles from the last couple of weeks. Definitely. Thank you, Marilyn. Uh, Scott asks, once someone has COVID, should doctors be able to prescribe Ivermectin if that is their judgment without fear of being investigated. So I, I think here there are two parts. A, should they prescribe it? Let's say, what's your doctor's point of view? Without fear of being investigating, what is your take in terms of the politics around Ivermectin? So uh, I do not think that there's strong evidence that Ivermectin is an effective drug. I think that there, there is one, one trial that we're still waiting to see the results from, but I'm not uh, impressed with the, the data on ivermectin. I think the studies that have shown benefit have been very flawed and not well done. And I think that there are better alternatives on that, that better alternatives. And, and what we've seen is ivermectin has become a, a political issue and not really a scientific issue. So it's become very, very difficult. And anytime I mention ivermectin and then I'm not that I've not prescribed it to patients, I get a lot of 
uh, hate mail and, and, uh, and, and threats. Uh, so it's not something that's fun to talk about. Do I think the doctors should be investigated? So we, in the United States, for example, doctors can prescribe things off label all the time. As long as they're FDA approved already, they can do that. What I think, so I, I actually just before this got asked by somebody, a government official about this, this exact question, um, if I would testify at a hearing about this. And I wrote a long email about about this, trying to figure out exactly what, 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 I act, what, what the actual position that I hold is and what it should be. And I think when it comes to ivermectin, if people are prescribing it in lieu of telling, saying, don't get vaccinated, I've got, I've got you covered with ivermectin, or don't get, don't get the monoclonal antibodies, I've got, you, I've got ivermectin for you, or they're coupling ivermectin with misinformation or disinformation, that's where I have the problem, where I do think that that's probably tantamount to malpractice. Uh, if you're saying, you do use, use ivermectin, but don't use the vaccine or use ivermectin, don't use this other drug that, that, that has been shown. That I think runs across the line of malpractice. And I do think that, that doctors should be liable for making poor treatment decisions just like they are all the time with malpractice. So, so I think that this is a politically charged topic, but I think in general, we don't want doctors prescribing, prescribing things that don't work, but, but, and that happens all the time. People go into the doctor with back pain, they get some muscle relaxant, but there's not been any proven effectiveness. That happens all the time. And I think we have to distinguish that from when people are coupling ivermectin prescriptions with basically uh, pro prohibiting or not or, or steering patients away from things that actually have been proven uh, definitively, like the vaccines, like the monoclonal antibodies. Uh, so I think that that's where I draw that distinction. And I don't think that I do want to preserve the ability of doctors to prescribe off-label. I think that's really vital. And, and I, I, have, I won't, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't oppose that aspect of it. It's just the malpractice part when they're, they're using ivermectin in lieu of things that are much, much more proven. Or if they're using ivermectin in a way that, you know, telling their patients, go get ivermectin from the veterinarian because I don't want to prescribe it. That's also, I think, a little bit behind, uh, a little bit over the line because we know that when you give ivermectin in those high, veterinary doses, people can get side effects. So, Amy's one of the biggest tragedies, political tragedies around the, the pandemic is how the vaccines became part of the culture wars and part of politics. So now we see an elaboration of this, which is the so-called mandates and lockdowns for the unvaccinated. So, first of all, two different things. Mandates for people to vaccinate, where technically the government doesn't tell you you have to, otherwise I'm going to arrest you. But the government pushes some restrictions for people who haven't had the vaccines. And also what we see recently, for example, in Austria or in other European countries, something that looks like, to put it simply, a lockdown, a quasi-lockdown for the unvaccinated. So can you give us your take, A, on mandates, quasi-public mandates, private mandates to different issues, but also your take on lockdowns or something that looks like a lockdown for the unvaccinated? So when it comes to mandates, I think we have to draw distinctions between private organizations and government. And there are many reasons, good reasons for businesses to say, we want our employees to be vaccinated because it keeps our, keeps our employees safe. It keeps our workplace safe. It, it decreases disruptions because we don't have contact tracing, isolation, quarantine. Uh, we can advertise that we're a fully vaccinated workforce. So in terms of resiliency through the pandemic, I think that businesses have a strong case to, to want all their employees vaccinated and to require it as a condition of employment. And I've advised many companies long before people talked about mandates to do this because I think it's, it's absolutely uh, 
a good measure to have in place during a pandemic where you have workforce stoppages. I consult with many companies. Some people can have 20% of their workforce out, some plants that are making vital things because they've got outbreaks there. Those can be minimized. Those can be decreased by doing this. So this is a, a clear, there is a business case for this. Uh, Before becomes- we go to the next point, can I push you a bit more on this one? So someone would say, look, statistics show that the difference in terms of transferability is not dramatic between a vaccinated and a non-vaccinated. So, okay, I get that a private employer has the right to do so, but is it moral? Is it moral to push someone to do something that maybe they have personal reasons not to do? Personal reasons such as, for example, I already had an infection and I'm worried about uh, autoimmunes, even if it's one in 300,000. So, would you say that the fact that the vaccines have been life-saving, but in terms of transferability of the disease, they haven't scored maybe as high as the average Joe would expect. Would this make the case for the mandates less strong? Well, I would say that they do decrease trans- transmissibility. People are, it's not, it's, they're not magic force fields, but a vaccinated person is much, much less likely to spread and much less likely to contract than they are if they're unvaccinated. I do think that companies need to be nuanced if there are people with prior immunity to think about those on a case-by-case basis and maybe say they need one one dose of vaccination. The the people with prior immunity need to be thought of as a separate category than the unvaccinated. But I I think that there is enough there to say, this is what you want. And and employers, so if you look at the meatpacking industry in the United States, so those meat plants, Workers died there. We we have school bus school districts that can't can't bus their children because bus drivers have died. So it's not just transmissibility; it's also workforce resilience. So I do think that this that when I look at these vaccines, I think that they clearly make a difference for a business's operations. And I do think that a business that, that it is moral for them to ask for that. I think they they need to have flexibility and, and not treat all of the employees one size fits all. But I think it's a goal that they should strive for, and I've supported them doing that. I think the issue is is when when it becomes muddled, when the government gets gets into it, and the government clearly wants these more more of these mandates, even if a company might have wanted them on their own. Uh, now it's being seen as the government pushing uh, pushing for this because we've seen President Biden with the with uh, the regulation that he's proposed by uh, the Occupational Safety Health Administration, a regulation which I disagree with. Uh, that that uh, that they're they're going that way. Anyway, so it's become very muddled. This is just like the school vaccine issue where it's so muddled because there's government involvement in the schools. So whatever, it, it all gets looked at as the same thing when it's when there actually is a legitimate case to be made for, for the vaccines in, in specific situ- in, in these situations, even if the government didn't actually uh, want that to happen on its own. Mark, have you got any other difficult question regarding mandates? Because it's the thing which is on everyone's mind when it comes to the politics of the, of the vaccines. Well, I mean, I, I agree with the mesh totally about uh, the difference between the private and the public sector and the confusion between the two because they're so enmeshed now. But I want I wanted to ask a question. How can libertarians like uh, like uh, Tom Woods uh, put up do whole shows on statistics that claim that there were really no differences in transmission between states that had hard lockdowns and states that had no, no lockdowns, it, it, making the case that these mandatory lockdowns actually had no real effect on the spread. That I actually agree with it. So if you look at countries like, I mean, states like Florida, where they, they did a lot better than most people would have, would have expected based on their, their mitigation. States like California did a lot worse. So I think that there is a lot to be said about what happened in the United States. And the question you asked before was, do, 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 does a lockdown in principle do that? Yes, but lockdowns, but 
that, that's a different story for what actually was done in the United States. But yes, I think that there is a lot to say about how states that did not have uh, as restrictive policies did versus states that had very restrictive policies. And I think that that's, there's a lot of, uh, there needs to be a lot of after action over what happened there. And I think my hypothesis is that states like California, where they, they banned, for example, outdoor dining, which has very little risk of transmission, basically drove people underground. And they were saying, okay, we're not going to go to uh, to this restaurant and have and have uh, dinner. Come over to my house and do it, um, which is indoors and more transmission. So this basically discarded a concept in, in public health we call we call harm reduction, where we tell people, yes, there's going to be risks if you do this. These are some tools that to make it safer, knowing that we can't get the risk down to zero. In places like California, where they were really pr practicing what I call abstinence only. Drove, drove a lot of transmission underground, and they did a lot worse than they would have if they would have been a little bit more clear with the public. And states like Florida and Texas kind of went the other way, but did better than when you actually, where they actually, uh, where you actually thought they would end up based on their policies. Maybe that's because of the, the way who got infected, maybe young healthy people got infected and they got a lot of population immunity that didn't translate into hospitals in crisis early on, maybe because they're outdoors and they can do many activities outdoor uh, because of the weather and that, that, that decreased transmission. But states in Texas and, and Texas and Florida did get into trouble eventually with, with some hospitals in crisis, but they did a lot better than most people uh, most people expected them to do. And I think that's an important point to make when we look at policies. But in general, the way the U.S. responded with these quasi lockdowns in, in every in all 50 states, I, I don't think was well, well thought out. I think it was it was basically based on panic because there was major abdications from the federal government with with uh, early on in January, February, March, where nothing was done and governors got scared and used very blunt tools and just did not know what they were doing. And really caused a lot of damage with the way they handled this. And then they continued to handle it this way. They did the same thing again in the summer. They did the same thing again last winter because they did not learn from their mistakes. So, so I think that in that, that sense, uh, th this was a, a disaster, uh, that policy. And it's always, it always should be known that if you are going to a lockdown for your mitigation policy, that means you have failed because that means that, that everything else that you could have done before you didn't do or, or did incorrectly. Because it, it, and the WHO has actually said that a lockdown is a policy, is a evidence of policy failure. Mm. Now, now how, do you think the media was irresponsible in the way it's been treating this pandemic from the beginning? It, it's been irresponsible on both sides, and, and I, I'm somebody who goes on all three of the major U.S. cable news networks, and it is irresponsible on every side of it. I think um, that there is a side, there, there is a lot of politics that's been injected, but I don't know that the media has as much of an agenda other than they're trying to pander to the, whoever their audience is. So it's a lot about sensationalism. It's a lot about spinning things up and getting people outraged. That's what the media does on all sides, and I think that they uh, sometimes don't, uh, they, they can't, Think about this as a scientific issue. It's not. It's not like you're on. Maybe if you watch, you know, PBS or the public broadcasting system in the United States, they're much more sober about it. But when you look at CNN, Fox, and MSNBC, they they are all going to cater to their audiences. They're all looking for ratings, and it, and they they can be a little bit. They, they can miss. Um, they, they can kind of take the nuance out of things. They, they kind of make things look monolithic when they aren't monolithic, and, and it can be very difficult. Uh, but I've. 
I've tried throughout this pandemic to be able to, to, to go on all three of those networks and, and try and center it and, and say, this is what's actually going on. This is what my position is. This is what other people's positions are. There is controversy here over this. We don't know the answer to this. And, and sometimes that's hard, but I, I do think that in general, um, the media has become sensationalistic overall. I think, but they're, they're, they're basically responding to what the people want as someone who's been in the media for two years straight now. So I think that they reflect the population and, and that's how the population is right now. Sure. I have one more question, Nikos, before I move on. It's sort of anecdotal. I've, I've heard of a few of my friends have, have contracted COVID. They have symptoms. They go to the doctors and the doctors and or the hospital say, come back, you know, essentially when uh, you, you, you have to, when you're, when you're at the point where you, you probably can't, you're in such respiratory distress that you can't breathe. Now, is this a, a, a policy to not prescribe therapeutics right at the beginning of, of the contraction of the virus and to do it only when somebody's on the verge of hospitalization? So mo the most effective therapeutics that we have is the most effective therapeutic we probably have is, is dexamethasone, a steroid. And that really doesn't work unless someone is so short of breath that they require supplemental oxygen. What we've lacked throughout this pandemic is easy to administer oral antivirals, which are coming with Merck and Pfizer, uh, which failed with hydroxychloroquine, which failed with ivermectin. We do have monoclonal antibodies, which can be infused or injected. So people who come into the hospital and they're not sick enough, to, or they go to the doctor, they're not sick enough to be admitted, um, but they have some high risk conditions. Maybe they're obese, maybe they're above 65, maybe they have asthma. Those people should be getting monoclonal antibody infusions uh, that will actually prevent them from progressing to need hospitalizations. They're hard, they were hard to get early on because it's, you have to find someone that's gonna infuse you. You've gotta figure all of that out. Logistically, they can be difficult, but that's the only treatment we have right now for people who are not sick enough to be hospitalized. Um, hopefully when we get these antivirals, they will, they will do as well as they, they, they seem to look in the, in the early data that we've seen. Uh, Nikos might have more experience because they're already available in the United Kingdom, but I think that that's really going to be something that's game changing when we have an oral antiviral that unequivocally works, uh, that, that will be um, really a, a taming of this virus and shifting it towards a more milder, uh, a more milder, much more manageable condition. It really frosts me that, that a drug is available in Europe and not available in the United States. Didn't, didn't they do this with, um, with beta blockers that were available in Europe for something like a decade before the FDA cleared them in the United States? But it happens vice versa too. There are drugs here in the United States. Not they all. Each regulatory agency works on a different pay, path and uh, a different pace. So I suspect that the U.S. Uh, probably in December uh, we will start to see the, the the first antiviral, the Merck, and then the Pfizer soon after. Um, but remember, the United Kingdom also approved the Pfizer vaccine for COVID before the U.S. did. So England England beat the United States to to vaccinating as well. Uh, I think it was the first Western country to have the vaccine uh, compared to the uh, with the U.S. and and they also have they have the AstraZeneca vaccine there, which we would have liked to have early on when we were trying to scale up vaccination. So every place has its own its own schedule, and it's very hard to understand the intricacies of these bureaucracies. So, Amy, this means that even people who even for people who enter the hospital, the fatality rate is lower these days. Hopefully, right. Definitely. So I think that what we've seen, this happened even before the vaccine. As we learn more about this virus, as we understood complications, how to recognize and prevent them and treat them, how we got better with mechanical ventilators, um, as we got remdesivir, which I think isn't a great drug, but it's there. But dexamethasone was really transformative in decreasing mortality. 
And then we have a certain immune system drugs. So we have seen mortality drop in the hospital. So it's much better to get COVID-19 now in November of 2021 than it was even in November of 2020, or, or definitely much better than January of 2020. But remember, that's all contingent on your hospital not being crushed. If, if a hospital is crushed with so many patients, they're not going to be able to provide provide good care. So that's really important to remember. But yes, we've come a long way with treating COVID. It is much, much easier now. I have I have a lot more ease and confidence when I'm taking care of a COVID patient now than I did in those early days in March when, when it was really uh, harrowing. Uh, yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine how difficult it must have been also from your point of view. Uh, we left, though, in the middle the issue of the partial lockdowns or the lockdowns for the unvaccinated. So do you think there's anything to it in terms of its it's being a useful tool of public policy. So let's leave principles aside as all politicians do these days. Do they make sense? Or do you think it's a, it's a leeway towards lockdowns or of one kind or the other for everyone, which will just start from the unvaccinated? Again, in countries like Austria. So, so I think that this comes from a misunderstanding of this virus. And as I said early on, uh, this is going to be with us. There's always going to be a baseline number of cases. And there's other coronaviruses that accelerate their transmission when it gets colder. It's getting colder in the Northern Hemisphere. Cases are going to go up. And there are countries like Romania and Bulgaria, which are going to be a disaster because they don't have enough vaccine in people. But for other countries, if there's enough high-risk people vaccinated, you won't see those cases translate into hospitals in crisis. So that's a different type of issue. Because yes, you're going to see cases. Yes, they're going to be concentrated in the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated are going to spread it. Yes. But will they crush your hospitals? That's a, that's the, that's the key thing. And I think what go even the lockdowns for the unvaccinated that, that Austria is doing don't make sense in the era when we have other things. We have rapid tests. Why can't you test? And Austria does this. So if you need to go to the grocery store and you're not vaccinated, they make you test. Why can't you just do tests? We have oral te- we have rapid tests that people can do with their saliva, with their nose at all times. Why can't that be the norm? This should have been the norm early on. We would have avoided a lot of this craziness if people could know their status and say, I'm positive, I'm staying home, I'm negative, I'm gonna go to my friend's house. That's what we should have been doing back in March and April when those tests were developed. So it doesn't make sense to me that Austria is going back to this type of a strategy when there are rapid tests. This is the crazy New Zealand, Australia, COVID zero approach that, that, that I've criticized for, for so long. Uh, that's why we have rapid tests. So I don't think that this makes sense. Yes, the unvaccinated are going to be a risk. They are going to be something that people are concerned about. But what you're going to do is create protests, lockdowns, split the country with these lockdowns, split the country more than split the country more than you need to. When you can just say, why don't you just test? If, if you're not vaccinated, just test. I've been to meetings and conferences where they say, if you're not vaccinated, just test. And, and that, that's a much better way to do this. And what Austria is doing now is that in certain states is they've moved from the unvaccinated, just as you said, to uh, lockdowns for the vaccinated. And I think this really reflects the fact that they don't understand what the goal is with COVID-19. This is not eradicable. This is not eliminable. Our goal is to tame it, to remove it from crushing hospitals. And that's what vaccination does. So lockdowns for vaccinated people in Austria really make zero sense to me. Um, uh, and I think that this, uh, I, I don't know where this trend is coming from. It's not something that I think is endorsed by the majority of public health uh, officials. And it just seems to be a uh, panic and going back to the, the battle days when we've got new tools that should update the way you actually think about COVID-19. So let's go to some super chats from the audience. So Wyatt asks thoughts on the OSAA, OSHA mandate. I think, Amy, you already, yeah. OSHA, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I yeah, so go ahead. Super chat from Jeff. Uh, he says, I hate being coerced. You helped me convince myself to get a shot. 
no Johnson and Johnson in Canada at first, so I go to the Moderna. Now they want to coerce me into asking for permission papers to live in society. Is it stupid to draw a line where I stand on principle? But I, I hear many people say this, that, but isn't then you harming yourself if, for example, you say, I don't want to get now the vaccine because I want to resist the powers to be that are becoming coercive indeed. So I'm not sure I follow the question. So the, que the question implies that, okay, we got the vaccine, yeah. but now we are being we are being coerced by a government in terms of having to ask for a permission to go on with our lives. So, and, and this is what makes people also turn in against the vaccines, which I think is very unfair because you do the vaccine for yourself. You do, don't do the vaccine for others or for your government. So it's more on a common run than a, on a question. Yeah I, mean, I think, yeah, I think that I always tell people this vaccine improves your personal life. You should be getting vaccinated because now you, you are free from that risk of COVID or that worry about COVID or it disrupting your life. And I think for too long, they did, they kept saying, you know, you're getting vaccinated as part of, you know, for the community. But no, I got vaccinated because I wanted this vaccine. I, I got vaccinated in December of 2020. I was scrambling. I wanted it because I wanted it to improve my life. Vaccines improve your personal life. And I think that actually motivates people to get vaccinated. If you tell people get vaccinated because you know, your country wants you to be vaccinated, that doesn't, that's not very compelling. What's compelling is get vaccinated because it's improving your life, just like an iPhone improves your life. That's, that's a very good way to put it. So Alison asks, my husband and I get Moderna booster next Tuesday. What happens next as far as getting another vaccine or another dose? Is it like the flu shot and we get it once every year? So it's too early to know what happens. Some people say this might be a three-dose vaccine for the mRNAs. We, we have to see. We have to wait and see. And again, I think for healthy people that are getting boosted, it's unclear what the, what the goal here, what the endpoint is. Uh, it may be that if you're immunocompromised, you need to get more boosted more frequently. But I would stay tuned because we don't know enough. And again, we talk about the, these, these first-generation vaccines, but there are second-generation vaccines that are in development that may be different, that might have different protection qualities. So I would keep an eye on all of that, but I think it's too early to know exactly whether or not. And remember, we're not doing this like the flu because the flu is a totally different virus, totally different family. It mutates away from the vaccine. What we've seen even with the Delta variant is that the, these mutations are not taking it away from the vaccine. The vaccine is still able to do what it needs to do uh, with, with the Delta variant. So the flu, that everybody goes to that flu analogy, but that is such a tricky different virus that, that I think that those analogies break down. Okay. And another question. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just, look, I, I, I have friends on both sides of the political spectrum and my friends on the right refuse to take the, the vaccine because it's quote unquote gene therapy and they don't trust that. It's as if they think that taking this uh, mRNA, this untried, untested uh, quote unquote technology will send them into the I am legend sphere of uh, science fiction. You know, they're going to turn into some kind of mind-controlled zombies or something. Can, can you put people's minds to rest about mRNA technology and what it does? So, so oh, sorry, it's also about the cardiac issues that's... Uh, All right. Yeah. Okay. So mRNA vaccines are, are super exciting, super awesome technology. So this is something I had written about even before this pandemic and said, this is going to change the way we think about vaccines because they are so elegant. You basically can plug and play and have a vaccine candidate very, very quickly. And because all you're doing is putting in the genetic material of the actual protein of interest you need on the pathogen, it's something that could be done very quickly and simply. And what the distinction is between mRNA and gene therapy is, is that gene therapy, I think when most people think about it, they think this is changing your DNA, it's changing your genetic makeup. That means it has to go into your nucleus. So it has to go through your into your cell, into the cytoplasm, 
from the cytoplasm in across the nuclear membrane into the nucleus and then somehow do something to your DNA. That's what gene therapy does. What this, this doesn't even go near your DNA. This is not in the nuclear membrane. It doesn't go in the nucleus. It stays in the cytoplasm. The mRNA gets in your cytoplasm and your, right, I'm giving people biology 101 here, but the, the, the ribosomes, the, the things that, trans, that, that translate mRNA into protein, just basically take it and, and make that spike protein, which is then presented to your immune system. So this doesn't even go near where, where you were, would be with, with the gene. Um, where what gene therapy would do. And I think that people just don't understand that. And mRNA, it's, it has been tested. Look at how many millions of people have been vaccinated. Hundreds of millions of people have been vaccinated. And mRNA technology had been in the works for two decades because it was so promising. And it's not only going to pay dividends in vaccines, it's going to pay dividends in cancer. It's really going to be exciting. I think that this is a great technology. I think, you know, for people that are watching, there are probably a lot of Ayn Rand fans watching. I mean, this is reared in metal. Uh, and, and some of the objections to it are the same things that they said to, to the character Hank Reardon about his Reardon metal. This is untested. You don't want to use Reardon metal. Um, mRNA vaccines are Reardon metal. Uh, so I would, that's how I think of that. And those people who also bring up this gene therapy issue, then go get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. They don't do that either. So that, tell, that tells me that kind of means that this is not really a, a real objection. Because, okay, if, so, you know, if I'm arguing with somebody and I can't convince them this is not gene therapy, then I said, let's just get the, let's, I recommend you get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But then they don't want that one either. So I think that this is something that's really not a, a true objection. And I think it's great that we have the mRNA vaccines and we have a Johnson & Johnson vaccine as well, which is effective. And, and people aren't taking advantage of that when they have objections to the mRNA vaccines as if it doesn't exist, which doesn't make sense to me. So what would you say then to the people who say, well, we see young people are falling, quote, falling like flies, athletes, uh, card problems, and it's because of the vaccine? So, so, so what we're talking about here is myocarditis. So myocarditis is inflammation of the heart. And this is something that occurs for many different causes, including from COVID-19 itself, including from influenza, including from the smallpox vaccine. So myocarditis occurs. But what we've seen with myocarditis and the mRNA vaccines is that this isn't a universal risk. It seems to occur. Yes, it seems to occur. More common with Moderna than Pfizer, maybe because Moderna is a higher dose. And it happens in people that are in their late teens to early 20s in males. And that may have to do with the testosterone levels that they have. And this myocarditis seems also to be more common after the second dose. And it might be due to the fact that the first and second doses are spaced too close together. So this is something that we've seen. It's a signal we've recognized. There is a warning about it. And when we look at the myocarditis cases that happen, they're not dropping like flies from it. These are very mild myocarditis cases and the fact, and very different than other myocarditis cases because they get better faster. They don't really have any after effects. So it is a manageable risk. But what I would say, if your child, if you're someone in the age group, late teens, early twenties, male, then I think what you could do is a couple of things. One is, first of all, if you're above 18, take the Johnson & Johnson vaccine if that's available to you, or take the AstraZeneca vaccine if that's available to you, because there's not an issue there. Again, these people won't do that because I don't think that this is a legit, they're actually interested in a, they're just interested in kind of trying to malign the vaccines and find a solution, or at least get the first dose, get the, that first dose helps, or, and then maybe even space the second dose at eight to 12 weeks if you're in that risk group. But if you're a child, if you're if your child is five to eleven, there's no risk of myocarditis that's been seen in that age group. And I would be very, very surprised to see that there's an increased level of myocarditis just based on what we've seen. If you're a female, really no major risk of myocarditis. And again, if you're over 18 and you're really worried about this, 
space the doses or get one of the alternative Johnson and Johnson. If you're in the United States, AstraZeneca, if you're in Canada, the UK. And if someone would have an issue with his heart because of the vaccine, uh, to put it simply, would they, would they know it or, 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 or could it appear months after? No, you would so know. Would it be worth going to your cardiologist and have a checkup, let's say? No, you would know. I think this what, what we've seen with these myocarditis cases is that they all end up getting seen because people become short of breath or, or people have their heart skipping. Something changes. And many of them in the United States were getting admitted to the hospital for a day or so just for testing. So this is something that, that you notice. Um, so this is not something that comes up years later. This is, uh, this is something that's likely related to the immune reaction to the mRNA vaccines, specifically the second dose being very close to the first dose where the immune system doesn't calm down between. It's still revved up and more common in males and most likely testosterone related. So that, that's the best hypothesis we have for it right now, but it's not a universal risk and it's getting presented as a universal risk. And that's just not the case. That's clear. Thank you. Uh, super chat from Marilyn. Is there any downside to getting a booster? I'm 68 and healthy and considering canceling my booster appointment. So, so if you're 68 years old, I would get a booster because we've seen some erosion of the ability of the vaccine to protect against serious disease, hospitalization and death in people above the age of 65. So I would recommend if you're 68, you should get you should get a booster uh, because it will protect you. Um, and, and that's completely data driven. That's where I think the actual benefit for boosters are in that age group. Okay, so super chats from Jeff. Again, a huge thank you to all our super chatters. I think my point was missed. So he says he supports the vaccine. He protected himself and he, the people uh, he loves. Only official state papers are accepted. It is, it's in my self-interest to comply. Submission is my issue. I still feel locked down. So this is the idea that people said, look, again, I've taken the vaccine. I protected myself. I protected my beloved ones. Why does it still feel that my, is, my liberty is in jeopardy? Well, I think that this is, this is strange for most people, that they have to have a vaccine card or that gets asked. Uh, I, um, uh, for, but, but this is not, I think this was expected to happen. I think this is a temporary state of affairs until people figure this out. But suppose I, I'm an American and I have to go to Peru. I need to show them yellow fever vaccine immunized. I have to show them that card and they won't let you in Peru. I went there for vacation. So we've had vaccine, we've had vaccine checks As well, if you're an immigrant to the United States, uh, uh, you you will be asked to show your measles, mumps, rubella, all of that. So I, I don't think of that as major coercion. I think, I mean, it is getting a little bit difficult with having to show your card. If you go to New York City in restaurants, you have to show your card, um, which I think is a, little, is a little bit onerous. And I think the government should have been much more, people should have made apps and things to make this easier. I think just, I would think of this as a transient thing that's going to happen as more people realize that COVID-19 is going to become an endemic virus. And I think don't sacrifice your life because you don't want to submit because you think it's, you know, it's, an, it's, you know, this is a very, we do so many things. You have a driver's license. You have to, you do so many things that you have to do that, that are, that are annoying um, because of the way that, the government bureaucracy works and this is probably no this isn't to me much different than having to show you know your driver's license when you're buying liquor or whatever it might be uh this is uh this is very similar to that to me it's just a nuisance and hopefully this will, will get over all of this uh, eventually mark start thinking about your last question because we're reaching the end there's going to be no clubhouse today because we had so many questions and uh, amy's has already been so generous with his time so duncan asks any retrospective update on the overall infant fatality rate pre-vaccine compared to post-vaccine? 
there's no data that there's infant mortality has gone up or down with this vaccine. I think if, I think maybe the question is alluding to safety and pregnancy. It looks more and more robust. Oh, sorry, more no, not infant mortality. Sorry, sorry, sorry. IFR, not infant. Uh, infection fatality rate. Sorry. Okay. Okay. I thought you were talking infant mortality rate. Okay. No, 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 no. Um, infection. No. So I, I think the I think the overall infection rate fatality rate is probably around 0 0.5, 0 0.6 when you look at how many people have been infected. And I thought that that's where it would get. If you remember early on, that's you said what we it were on Jaron Brook already in February or January 2020. Yeah, so I think that that's what I thought with this respiratory virus, just kind of eyeballing it. And it's, it's uh, I think that's where it sits, 0 0.5, 0 0.6 overall, if you look at the whole population. But remember, that's the whole population. It's much lower in a, in a five-year-old and much higher in a 70-year-old. And how does this compare post-vaccine? Well, I think it's, so it's, it's still going to be 0.5 for the people that are not vaccinated. I think in, in, in the un, in the non in the vac, fully vaccinated individual, it's probably fallen to you know point. It's coming to around point one. I I would say say this is an eyeball. I haven't done the math. Um, I think it's probably going to fall to around influenza's mortality, seasonal influenza's mortality when you when you factor in um, in the vaccinated population because fully vaccinated people are very rarely killed by this virus. It's happened. Usually immunosuppressed people, we had General Colin Powell die from this recently, that, that does happen, but it is not the norm, and it's a very small number, so it's, it's very rare that a breakthrough infection will kill you, but it can happen, but it's not very low, so it may be, I would say, 0.1 or lower, uh, if I, right. but I have to do that. So last question, it's, uh, it has to do with the issue of experts. So Scott asked a question, which I'm paraphrasing a bit because I can't find it in front of me. So it has to do with how do we perceive the scientific establishment after this? And is it that many people have the perception that scientific establishment uh, says follow the experts, but in a way that it dismisses legitimate questions. So in a way, we have a shrinking of the public sphere in terms of being able to ask questions and to, to, to ask for uh, people's reasonable uh, uh, doubts that they have about, let's say, the official narrative. I think what's happened is many of the experts got tied into the politics because this pandemic, this issue has been much different. If you go back to Ebola or H1N1 in 2009, we didn't have this. And I think the experts got sucked up into that. And it, it became very easy to think, to see things through the lens of politics rather than being an expert. So I, I think that this is going to take some time. There has been a breach now between experts and the general public. I try to do things like this, where I take questions unfiltered, where I'll answer the question rather than and, and work with people to see what their actual issue is. But I think when you, what, what it's, it's very difficult because many experts don't want to do that. They've all gotten into certain camps and because the attacks on experts, the physical attacks, the, the, the hate mail, that also makes it very hard to be an expert because then you don't want to do things. You just kind of want to hide in your political cave if that's, if that's what's going to happen to you. If you, if you have to have, you know, Dr. Fauci has to have security everywhere for his daughters, for it, that, that's completely insane. I get hate mail and death threats on a daily, I'll probably get some after this, but, but, I, but, but that's not, it doesn't make it fun to be an expert. And it also makes you more insular as an expert because you're, you're triggered and you don't want to get yourself into these fights all the time. Some yeah, the, the, the fact how how again how this became part of the culture wars is is so detrimental. But anyway, so Mark, what is your last uh, questions to Amy's? Then I'll ask my last question, and then we'll wrap up. Well, it seems that politics has has crossed over in, into science a few times in our history, but this time it seems to be much more intense. Um, do you think that the political landscape has changed to such a degree that? 
that now it's in, it's embedded into science in a way that it's very difficult for the everyday average man to sort of look at science and actually think it's credible. When we see it embedded in climate science and now we're seeing it play out in this particular virus, do you think we, this is what we have to look forward to from here on out is a politicization of science and the use of it for some political establishment or another? Unfortunately, I think the answer is yes. I think that we've seen we've seen this demarcation actually split. If it didn't split across a political fault line, probably no. But now you see Republicans think one thing, Democrats think one thing. So it fits conveniently in this two worlds, this false alternative that we're stuck in. And I think, yes, I think that's probably going. It's what we're seeing now. If you look and see who is not vaccinated, if you look at rates of COVID-19 in, in country and in, in counties that were red versus blue in terms of the, the last presidential, it all maps very well. So I do think that this is now something, and when we saw it before, remember that those school boards were trying to ban the teaching of Darwin uh, in my home state in Pennsylvania before, that intelligent design. So there, th this is something I think that we really have to, to be on alert, alert because science has gotten politicized. One political party seems to like it and then and, and the other political party seems to completely spurn it. And, and it's and it's going to be disastrous for science and scientists and all of us if this isn't fixed. I think this is a, a major but, problem. But then it also seems like the side that likes it is trying to use it to achieve social ends. Right. I think that, that yes, I think that's happening. And, and yeah. the people that don't like it are trying to use their anti-science to achieve social ends. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's yes, I think this is just our tribal our tribal world we live in right now. Hmm. Last super chat is from Roberts. He says, anyone interested in the discussion of submission to authority might look up he, the, his episode of Life on Earth entitled Blind Followers or Blind Rebels, which in a way it's the two sides of the same coin. So Amy's last question, more like out of personal curiosity, because you are on the one hand a, a medical expert, but also you are someone who is also an intellectual in terms of you are you think about principles you think about philosophy so has there been a point within the last 20 months where the scientist and the medical the, the epidemiology expert in your mind had the class maybe with the intellectual so did you think at some point that what you'd want to do as a doctor would come into conflict with your understanding of freedom and of individual rights and I think that happens all the time, even not just when you're talking about COVID, but when you're a doctor taking care of patients, you know what the correct answer is, and, but, the, but the patient has their own free will and they may not actually want to do that. So yes, I do think, you know, if, and I think this, the, a lot of experts got put in this position. We were tasked with this idea of how do we stop COVID-19? Basically, that's it. And period. We didn't, not, not anything else. And, and there's easy answers to that. It's the hard part is thinking, how do you, how does that fit into individual rights and freedom and government and due process and doing all of that correctly. So, so yes, I think that it is, it is hard. It is difficult to, 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 to be an expert where there's certain tools that the, that might be able to work, but they don't actually fit with what you actually think is the right way to do it. And so, yes, that, that that's been one of the hardest challenges is trying to walk that line and, and try to be, um, you know, to have integrity to the, and have integrity and stick to the principles that I, that I believe in, while at the same time trying to deal with this horrible virus. And, and that's very, very difficult. So just to say a personal uh, thank you, Amy, is because from the very first time, from February 2020 to the dark days of the, of the beginning, I think, as many people have said, you've been a voice of reason at the, at the same time, not, I wouldn't say reassuring, but reassuring in terms of here's someone who you know he's going to say the things as they are, 
and someone that we can trust not based on faith but based on you know on your status and the things you say and let me encourage people to go and watch if it's available i'm not sure if ari has made available your ocon talk from this summer where you gave a let's say an overview of the pandemic what we did right what did we did wrong i think this is a this is this is very uh, interesting and again you have there are more super chats we thank you but take this thank you from everyone in the community we appreciate a lot what you're doing and we've gotten a lot of personal value from this. So coming next, we've got Enjoy Parenting with Lisa Van Damme and Kyan Still, It starts in a few minutes. And Mark, thank you very much. Uh, Amy's people can follow you on Twitter. You still write and speak often and you give updates on your take on, on how this pandemic is going. So thank you very much for being with us. And uh, we're, we're very lucky that we have the privilege that we can have you here. So thanks a lot and talk soon. Thank you. Thanks again. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.